We are in Galatians, so today we'll be going over Galatians 2 and 3, um, and Andrew and Wanda kicked it off, not last week, but two weeks ago, and they did an amazing thing, and I do have a PowerPoint today because everybody makes fun of me not using PowerPoints, um, and not only do I have a PowerPoint, but I was inspired by Wanda, and I decided that maps make everything better. <laughs> And so this is a map of the U.S., and this is a map of, or this is a map of the world, that's a map of the U.S. And this is uh, a map of Texas and DFW, and you are here. And that is the extent of my PowerPoint. There you go. I obviously don't know how to use this thing. There it goes. The end. So according to statistics, that just got way cooler because I used maps. So um, we will be in Galatians 2 and 3 today. It's kind of a lot to cover, so I'm going to do a quick overview of what we talked about in 1. Um, and then kind of breeze through 2. A lot of 2 is like narrative. So just to say last or two weeks ago, if you haven't listened to that, make sure to listen to it. But Galatians is very important and where it fits into the New Testament. As Wanda mentioned, it's the first book that Paul wrote. So he had to have a really good reason to write something. Like she mentioned, like if you're going to write a book, you need to have a message on your heart. And it takes a lot for your first book. Maybe after you've like written a book, then your second book is probably easier. I don't know. I've never written a book. I'd imagine. So he had to have a message that was like, this needs to be said and this is imperative. And that's literally Galatians. So Galatians 1 is him talking about kind of who he is and about him receiving a revelation of Jesus and the gospels straight from Jesus, right? So you think about like Paul or Saul at the time didn't walk with Jesus. So everything that he received, he received straight from the Lord, not from walking with the man Jesus. Does that make sense? We'll talk about that again in a minute. So that's mostly Galatians 1. There's some obviously other, or other things in there. Galatians 2, you can if, just open to it if you can. Um, again, I'm not going to read all of Galatians 2. We're kind of going to summarize it. But the beginning part of Galatians 2, Paul's continuing talking about that he didn't, not only did he receive a revelation from Jesus about the gospel, but then he didn't immediately just go to like all these other people and be like, all right, now let me learn from all of you what you teach. He learned from the Lord. Like he actually learned from the Spirit, which is important because even about halfway through, Paul does something crazy. He opposes Peter. Now, did Peter walk with Jesus? That's very interesting. So Paul sees Peter kind of living this double standard of living with the Jews, he would be like a Jew, and with the Gentiles, he'd be like a Gentile. And then whenever the Jews came, he kind of like distanced himself from the Gentiles because he didn't want to be associated with them. And so Paul opposes Peter and tells him, you're wrong. Like, that's not right, which is pretty bold, right? But it just further, it further shows how what he received from the Lord, he knew this is the truth, and I'm going to stand on this and not be moved. Which in today's day and age... There's so many other gospels, as Paul talks about in Galatians 1, that he says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ, and they're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there's some who trouble you. And so the, the overarching theme of Galatians is he's like defending the freedom and simplicity of the truth. He's defending that. And so... That's Galatians 2 up to verse like 15, and then we're going to kind of read on from here. So Galatians 2, 15, I'm going to start out, give a little bit of foundation, so we're going to start out slow and then get going, so don't worry if it takes like 10 minutes for two verses, because it probably will. Um, Galatians 2, 15, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be justified? 
to be made right. Right? So I know a lot of times in church we have these Christianity words, and then we have words that are like actually amazing, but a lot of times they don't hit our hearts. And so I want to like demystify this for a second. Justified. He says, we know, it's important that we know this. That's why this is really good. We know that a person, that's you, is not justified. You're not made right by works of the law. You're not made right by what you do. But through faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be made right? Again, we can know that. I always start in Genesis. I didn't start in Genesis today, but we're starting in it now. We're going back to it. So in the garden, a shift happened in Adam and Eve, right? The eyes, their eyes that saw themselves were opened, right? Sin entered. So in the garden, they were made wrong. Does that make sense? They were made wrong. And the, the, the overarching question of humanity, I was even just thinking this this week. I was like very aware of all of our advertisements. You're like driving down the highway. It's like, transform your skin with blah, blah, blah. Transform your, like, your family. Transform your finances. We've been obsessed with, here's, here's what we've realized. There's something wrong. How do I make it right? Like in the most simple way, there's something wrong. How do I make it right? Everybody has their solution. Transform your finances, transform your family, transform your situation, transform our nation, transform like all the things. And we, we apply this to our Christian faith and we're trying to figure out, we know there's something wrong, but we're saying, how does this become right? We know that a person is not justified, not made right, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made right, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, again, law and faith can be hard to define. So, based on a lot of scriptures, my, the most simple thing that I would say is the law is dependent on my ability to do rightly. The law is dependent. It hinges upon my ability to do rightly. Even when the law was given in Deuteronomy, I mean, you know, it's given in Exodus, but Deuteronomy, like, talks about it again. It's like Deuteronomy 30, and several times, it's like, you can do this. You must do this. If you do this, I will do. Like, it's all do. The law, this is so key. The law is dependent on my ability to do rightly. Faith is in Jesus' ability to make me right. I'm going so slow because this is so foundational. And like we hear these things, but if we catch this, everything changes. So under the law, when you're trying to be justified by the law, you're trying to do rightly to be made right. You're trying to change this by doing rightly. That's the old covenant. Faith in the new covenant, you're recognizing what Jesus did in his ability to make me right. It's that he already has made me right, he's making me right, and he will make me right. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want us, when we hear law and faith through this, because it talks a lot about this, think about the law as dependent on my ability and faith as believing what he did, all right? Yes? Okay, thank you. I need some feedback. I'm used to talking to the youth. The youth are like, yeah, they understand feedback. So if in our endeavor, this is verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is really key because of time. I'm not going to go super deep into it. 
Basically, he's saying, if, if I'm now not focused on me doing rightly and I'm focused on Jesus making me right, if I find myself sinning, does that mean Jesus is leading me to sin? He's saying no. Simply put. Because if you will act out who you are. So a dog barks because it's a dog and a cat meows. So if you're changed into a new nature, what you do will change. But you don't change your nature by what you do. Does that make sense? It's the other way around. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. That's your old self. It's dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. That's what faith means. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a crazy verse. I do not nullify, some translations say make light of, the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if righteousness, if you can be changed and be made righteous based on what you do, then Christ died for no purpose. And the reason Paul's explaining this is because in the day, the Jews were so focused on the law, right? You see, like the Pharisees, you think about the Pharisees, and, and people were coming in trying to bring believers back under the law, which is why, like, that's the context for this. Today, we don't mostly have the, you know, we're not, like, trying to get under the Jewish laws. We're not, like, following all the Shabbat commands, right? Some people are. For the most part, we're not. But here's, here's how this matters to us. Then we're going to get into three. But I want to just give, again, foundation for this. As new covenant believers, mostly Gentiles, except for a few of us in the room that are Jews. I wish I was Jewish. I'm not. What was that? That's right. Yeah, in my heart. Praise God. We don't, we don't have a temptation to fall back under the old covenant laws. Our temptation is to, to make our faith about what we can do for God. That's our temptation. So the temptation for us is that I need, I need to do X, Y, Z for me to A, be a good Christian, and B, for me to live a life transformed into like not sin. We, we have things that we've made a law unto ourselves in order for us to walk out who God has called us to be. And it's not that the things are wrong, but it's that we've put them in the wrong place. Does that make sense? So as we talk about the law, those are probably the things that are actually really impacting us more than like the Jewish commandments. Does that make sense? Okay, so the Galatians were going back into the law. They were going back under it. So they were free. They were free in Christ. They were like, oh my gosh, for all these years we've tried to do all these things in the law. They haven't worked. We, are, we were still sinners. Actually, the law revealed sin, as Romans says. We'll talk about that again in a minute. That won't make us right. What makes us right is what Jesus did. So they're living free, and then other people come in and they say, hey, you can't be that free. You need to do, 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 do. Literally, you need to do, 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 do. And here's what Paul says about it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has led you into witchcraft? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So what's his solution to that? He said, did you not see Jesus? Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What is, how, whoa, this is huge. I've said this pretty much every single time I preach, and I'll say it every single time I preach again. He's saying for thousands of years, you were working and working and working to be made righteous, and you were never righteous. So the Spirit couldn't be given. Because if the Spirit of God were to fill you and you were unrighteous, you would drop down dead. 
So he's saying, how did you get holy enough for the Holy Spirit, God himself, to live inside of you? How did you get that pure and clean and holy and righteous? How did you get there? Was it through works of the law or through hearing with faith? How did you receive this spirit? How did God himself fill you? Through what you did or because of what he did? Does that make sense? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Paul, you need to calm down. Having begun, maybe he doesn't need to calm down. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? So he's saying, God is inside of you, working inside of you, and now you're trying to perfect yourself in your own strength through your flesh. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, praise God that he supplies the Spirit, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Yes, faith, praise God. <laughs> this is really wild too. I'm just, I mean, as I'm just reading this, I don't have any notes. This is all I got. So I'm just like, whatever comes out is what's coming out. But I'm even thinking about working miracles among us. How do we live a life of the miraculous? Is it through works of the law or by hearing with faith? Faith. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So you can imagine the Pharisees, what did they constantly tell Jesus? They were like, well, we are sons and descendants of Abraham. And so Paul knows that that's, that's their thing is like, are you a son of Abraham? Then follow the law. And so he's saying, Abraham was justified by faith, not by the law. So Paul's now like, I think this is his counter argument to them. Does that make sense? He's like, yeah, they're probably telling you that to be a son of Abraham and to actually be a son of Abraham, you need to be under this. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Abraham was justified by faith, not by the law, which he talks about in a minute. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Wow. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he's again showing this thing of how can Gentiles who aren't following the law receive the blessing of Abraham? Right? So you think about like if we're grafted in, Basically, it's like, okay, does that mean we're grafted into the law? He's saying you're grafted into the faith that Abraham had, not the law that was given. Does that make sense? You're grafted in to the faith. All of those, what verse is this? Nine. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Are y'all following this? Okay. It's going to get good. It already is good, but. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Whoo. Ouch. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and what? Do them. So if you are trying to be justified, if you're trying to make, be made right by what you do, then you have to do everything perfectly. Verse 11, now it is evident, it is evident, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. He continues, we'll get more into this now, but I want to, again, to give a little preface just like I did for this. The righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? I, we've talked about this a couple times before, but there's this thing sometimes in our culture, especially in like the word of faith movement, that's like, I'm going to just say that something is true, even though it totally doesn't look like it, and I'm not living it, but... It's faith. That's not faith. Faith is what Abraham did 
when he saw his body as good as dead, but he believed that God was faithful. He believed God. So he considered, right? He considered. He's like, I'm pretty much as good as dead. Is that not faith? No, it is faith. He said, I'm as good as dead. I can't have any kids. But he said, but because God is faithful, there's a higher authority, and I'm putting my faith in that. That's faith. If you have to deny circumstance to have faith, you don't have faith. If you have to deny what you're going through in order to have faith, then you have denial, not faith. Because faith goes above. Does that make sense? So the righteous shall live by faith. What that means, it does not mean that you like just live a life of sin and you're like, well, Jesus has made me right. What it means is that you actually understand what he has done. And I was like trying to think a lot about like how do we, how do, how do I describe this? And this is actually why I have the PowerPoint. The first part was a joke, clearly. Um, maps is Wanda's thing. My thing is visuals. I love visuals. Um, and so I was even picturing like I made this little Photoshop thing. This is all Photoshop. So if you want Photoshop help, let me know. So this man, this is how God created us, right? There's this guy, he's looking over, this is like an analogy. He's looking over the beauty of creation. You could almost say this is Adam, right? He's standing on this cliff, seeing the beauty of creation, and he's free to explore, right? Cool. Now here's what happened. Sin came in, and sin, this is, I don't know, I'm just giving a lot of like definitions today. I would say sin causes you to interact with creation in a way that is destructive. Creation's not destructive. Sin causes you to interact with creation in a way that's destructive. So in this analogy, here's what sin did. You're free to explore, but the wages of sin is what? Death. So sin causes you to interact no, literally, sin causes you to interact with creation in a way that kills you. If you're prone to sin, freedom is not helpful. Do you understand? If you're prone to sin, freedom will kill you. So, the law. If you're prone to sin, freedom will kill you, so the law is a barrier. Now, here's a question. Could that man jump that fence? Yes, he could. Is it possible to break the law and still sin? Yeah. It's just what it is, and here's exactly what sin is, or what the law is, is the law shows you how sinful you were. The law is in place so that you don't accidentally fall into death. It's so that you're aware as you're straddling this fence, you know, as your, as your shorts are getting ripped, you're like, why am I doing this? That's the purpose of the law. You say, why am I doing this? Oh, wait, because there's something wrong. Can you break it? Yeah, you can. You can jump over it. Y'all are laughing at my Photoshop skills. No. <laughs> so... You can jump over it, and people did, and people do. The law is not, it doesn't make it where it's impossible for you to sin. Again, it actually reveals your desire to sin. So what, here's, two, here's two things people have done in the Old Testament. There's the people that are the, what did I just do? Oh, there's the people that jumped and didn't care and led a life of destruction but then what if you actually did love the Lord and you actually didn't want to sin? What do you do? The Pharisees built their own fences, literally fence laws, around the law. Now, it was out of a place of zeal, right? Romans 10 says... Uh, Paul says that his people, referring to the Jewish people, they have zeal for God. But it's in their own strength. It's not in God's way of making people right. It's their way to be made right. So here's what they've done. This is actually an example. 
There's like a billion of these. But the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and this is literally like, again, this super applies to Galatians. Because this is, this is why the people in Galatia would have been getting a lot of like whiplash. is because this was the mind of the Pharisees and the, like the Jews at the time. Was that if God tells me not to, I don't know, I'm thinking of like kosher laws, just kind of mentioned it earlier. Like the kosher laws are like the laws for like Jewish, like the Jewish people of like how to eat, right? So there's one, there's a verse in there that says, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which is like, it can be interpreted in a lot of ways. Probably wasn't, this might not have been the right interpretation, but what happened, people interpret it like this. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, great. So what that means is that I can never make a meal where I'm cooking milk with meat because maybe accidentally it's the same goat. Does that make sense? Like, what if that's the goat's milk and then that's the goat's child? And so it's just this like weird thing, right? So they say, okay, so that we don't accidentally boil a goat or cook a goat with the milk of its mother, what we're going to do is we're going to never eat a meal that has milk and meat in it, ever. But then they say, well, but for how long? Like, does that mean you like have cheesecake and then five minutes later you eat a steak? No, so they say, well then how long? So there are like encyclopedia thick books talking about the law of how this should be done. Literally, this one thing. Some people say three hours, some people say six hours. The people that actually are like very orthodox say six hours. So you cannot eat anything with milk or anything with meat for six hours. Interesting, then they say, well what if we're accidentally in the kitchen and we're cooking something on a cutting, we're chopping this on a cutting board of this and that, whatever. So now what we're going to do, we're going to have a milk kitchen and a meat kitchen. True story, today in Israel. Now we're going to have a milk restaurant and a meat restaurant. Also true story. You cannot, in, the, in Israel today, you cannot get food that has milk and meat at the same restaurant. That's this. They can't see the beauty of the Lord. They can't see creation. There's no freedom, but they're not going to sin. But what happened is they built their own fence kind of wherever they wanted it. And so they were like, ah, we kind of want to do this. So they tear down the Lord's fence and then build their own fence a little further. So just like Jesus said, through their traditions, they nullified the law of God. Does that make sense? Was God's heart that they would never have a restaurant with milk and meat? But we do the same thing. And what I mean by that is that in order for our, our zeal for the Lord that we do in our own strength causes us to do or not do things that he's not really saying. It actually binds us. And so we continue in here. I wanted to talk about this a little later. I kind of did it early, so now I have to kind of backtrack. But... Does this make sense? Okay. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not a faith. This is verse 12. Rather, the one who what? Does them shall live by them. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 15, to give a human example, thank you, Paul, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So example, when I got my house, you sign all the papers, right? It's like, you pay this much, that much, great, cool, whatever, there's the promise. Uh, actually, a better analogy would be like, if someone were to just give me a house, and they give it to me, and we sign the papers, and we're done, and then like five months later, they come to me like, in order for you to have your house, you need to do this. It's like, hey, we already signed the deal, it's already done. Does that make sense? So, he, so Paul's saying, with the covenant that God made to Abraham, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
So he's giving this bridge, which we're going to talk about in just a second, a bridge between Abraham and Christ as the fulfillment of the promise. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified. So did y'all know God made a promise to Abraham and then the law came afterwards? What? So the law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So he's again saying, even the promise God gave to Abraham was not dependent on the law. The law came afterwards. So then what's the point of the law? Well, that's what he says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. What's transgressions? Transgression is your desire or pull from sin to do wrong. Literally, it's the fence. It was added because of transgressions. This is actually a really interesting perspective. Um, what is that, 19? I can't see. It's like boxed out and circled. Yeah, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Think about this. If the Jewish people would have gone just fully wild in sin, they would have literally wiped themselves out and Jesus couldn't have been born through them. The law was in place until Jesus came to protect them from death. Does that make sense? God told Abraham, through your, through your offspring, I'm going to redeem humanity through Jesus. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, what if the Jewish people had no law, and so they're murdering each other, committing adultery, and there's all this crazy stuff happening, and Jesus would literally have never been born because the Jewish people would have wiped themselves out. So he gave them a law to protect them. Is the law, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. So he's saying, is the law against the promise? No, it's not against the promise. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's this. That guy's in prison. The law has imprisoned him. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if he's imprisoned in sin or he's imprisoned by the law in the new covenant, Jesus through faith has made us righteous. So what he's done is he's taken away that boundary. He's given us freedom. Now, if freedom scares you, it's a sign that you don't know that you're made right. Freedom to a sinner is destructive. Freedom to the righteous is life-giving. Does that make sense? He's given us freedom. Now, again, is, is that water, is the, like, is the lake evil? No. But if you were jumping off of it, you could die, right? If you're jumping off this cliff onto it, you could die. Sin causes you to interact with creation in a way that's destructive. So if you're now led by the Spirit, you can navigate things you couldn't before through the Spirit, through the Spirit, not through your own understanding. There's no condemnation for those who... Walk by the Spirit, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Also, I, I, was, I was like, after I did this, I saw the little backpack, and I was like, it's like the backpack is full of little tools, like little hiking tools and a little hiking stick that the Lord gives you. It's literally gifts of the Spirit on how to walk through life in a way that's pleasing to Him. Now, just to say, there are things that are sin. I'm not saying there's not sin anymore, Right? There are things that are wrong, but when you're led by the Spirit, he'll lead you away from those things. But I'm saying that we don't need to live a life. What happens in our flesh is the more zealous we are for the Lord, the more we do this. And so you can't see the Lord anymore. All you see is the walls you've put up. 
And when you're actually in a place of freedom, this is where the Galatians were, and this is why people were so upset. Because this is really offensive to the religious spirit. This is really offensive to people who don't know that they've been made right. Does that make sense? If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you're being led by that, what is he going to lead you into? Life, yes. Righteousness, holiness. The spirit of holiness. Again, even like, oh my gosh, we have like all these phrases like, oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The spirit of holiness lives inside of you. Do you believe that? So if you're being led by the spirit of holiness, like this is, I don't know, this might be too much. If you are demon-possessed, you will be led by that spirit to do destructive things. If you are spirit of holiness possessed, like we have, we have this thing, like it just, I don't know, I get so frustrated when we're like, yes, the spirit lives inside of me, I'm walking by the spirit. And I'm like, you have no clue what that means. I don't know what that means. That's, that's the biggest deal ever. That's huge. If we actually believed that, everything would change. If we actually believed that, everything would change. And so if we are scared of freedom, it's a sign that we don't know we've been made right. Inversely, if you have freedom and it's causing you to sin, it's also a sign that you don't know you've been made right. The quote-unquote hyper-grace movement is not because people have too much grace, it's because they don't actually understand what Jesus did. It's not that they like, the hyper-grace people, the hyper-grace movement doesn't have enough grace. Because if they understood grace, they would understand that grace is the empowering presence of God for you to walk out who he's called you to be. But when we use grace as a license to sin, it proves, it's like, uh, I don't know, I was, there's like, so, there's like a hundred analogies, but like, Grace will empower whatever you are. So if you think you're a sinner, then you'll use grace as a license to empower what you are, which is a sinner. If you understand you're made righteous, then grace will empower you to live righteously. Does that make sense? Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. It guarded us. The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So he's saying, now that faith has come, you're not under a guardian. Well, how, Paul? How, how is it that now that Jesus did this, I don't need a guardian? Here's how. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, that means you died with him, and you were buried with him, and you were resurrected with him. You understand that's the only foundational way this can happen. If you haven't died, if your old nature hasn't died and been buried with Christ and you've been resurrected new, then you're still under a guardian. You need a guardian or else you'll die. But you're not under a guardian now that faith has come. Verse 25, so we're going to see this again, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God. Again, he's enforcing this identity piece. Because if you're a son of God, like John 3.16, the most, probably most popular verse, I don't know, that people know in the Bible, Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus how to be born again. These phrases that we think we know what they mean. Born again. Who are you born from? Who, yeah, the second time. <laughs> Kim says, which time? Who are you born from? The Spirit.
I don't know. I just think it's weird if the Spirit of God gave birth to a sinner. Like, he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity to die with me and be buried with me. And now, just as I rose from the grave, I'm going to raise you up and birth you again. And you're going to be the same way that you were before. You're born again. You're sons. You're his son. You're like your, like, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God and now we're created, we're born again. What image and likeness do you think we're born into again? Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you all one in Christ. Now, just to say, is this verse, what's he saying? He's saying it's a level playing field that if you've died with Christ, you got it. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free or male or female or Jew or Greek. You got it. Some people use this verse to say there's no, there's no distinction. He's not saying there's no distinction. He's saying there's no division. Just to say this verse taken out of context, people have done some pretty crazy things. This verse is one of the key verses for the big pro-LGBTQ community. There's no male or female. Paul said it. There's no male or female in the new covenant. That's not what he's saying. People have used this verse to, de to deconstruct and to, as a replacement theology for the Jewish people. There's no Jews or Gentiles. What he's saying is, is that you... If you have been baptized into Christ, you are transformed, and through faith in him, you can be made righteous, and it doesn't matter who you are. It does not matter who you are. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so for chapter 4, he goes all into the identity of being, the difference between being a son of the law or being a son of the promise. Does that make sense? So key things are that, again, in, in this text, the Galatians are living out a life of freedom that is so offensive to the Jewish religious leaders of the day that they're trying to come in and say, you can't be that free you can't really, you can't have faith. You can't truly believe what Jesus did was enough. You need to be doing, 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 doing this, 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 and this. And Paul is saying, no. When you understand that you're righteous, you will do far more righteously than if you're doing to become righteous. And I've used this example before, and it's like this thing of, if you were to write a book, if, you, if someone were to write a marriage book, where there's millions of marriage books, and if it was literally like a step-by-step -step guide on how to be married, and it was like, all right, step one, or not step one, I don't know, we're starting in the middle. It's like every day, buy flowers, not every day, probably like once a month, I don't know. Y'all can help me. <laughs> buy flowers for your wife, right? And then it's like, buy chocolates if they like chocolates, like, have a date night. You're like, there's, it, it tells you what to do. Are the things bad? No. But if I don't love my wife and I'm just doing the things to do it, the best I'll do is check off the boxes. I might even miss a few. But at best, I'll check off all the boxes. But if my heart is truly in love, I'll go beyond it. That's the law. The law of the new covenant is the law of love. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say don't even look at someone with lust. You've heard it said, don't, don't murder. I say don't even say you fool or be angry. The law of love takes the law of the Old Testament and one-ups it and raises it because now the spirit of holiness has possessed you. The spirit of holiness has possessed you. And so you're going to live far more holy than you would if you were checking off the boxes of the do's and the don'ts. But again, as Paul says, 
if by being justified by Christ, you found yourself to be a sinner, does that mean Christ has led you into sin? No. And that's the whole process of sanctification and letting what he has done go from here to here. Does that make sense? Oh, wow, that's loud. Has it been quiet? Has it been like super quiet this whole time? And it's like, ooh. Um, any questions on that before we take communion? Anybody offended by that? Like, like for real, though. Like, if you're not offended, you might not get it. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think you have to be offended to actually begin to comprehend it. Question or offense? <laughs> Both. Yeah, you're saying, like, what's the specific of, is it, like, how do we interact with, like, our old world? Or are you saying, uh, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, that's really good. Like, you're a new creation. The day that you get born again, you're new. But there's a process of walking out that newness. And here's why. It's because there's the renewing of our minds. Like, if, this is kind of funny, but if you were to think about this, if, if the second a baby was born, they could get born again, then they don't have any unlearning to do. But by nature, because we grow up in the world and it's all around us, there's a process of us distinguishing between truth and lies, truth and deception, you know? And so that is the process of you can be born again and you may sin. It doesn't mean that you're a sinner. It means that you, you're walking out your sanctification and that there's still places in your, in your mind and in your heart that the Lord is working out what's true. And again, just to say, I've, I've said this before, but even Adam and Eve in the garden, they had zero sin inside of them. They were 0% sinners. They were deceived and they sinned. So a 0% sinner can sin because they're deceived. They don't understand the truth. Does that make sense? So you can be born again and be pure, but be deceived by the enemy and be deceived by what you think is true and who you think you are. You're like, well, this is how my family is. This is how I am. I guess I'm just bound in this. And you can actually sin because you're deceived. Does that make sense? Adam and Eve had no, they didn't have anything in them that actually led them to sin, but the deception of the enemy tricked them and led them into a place that truly wasn't where they were. Does that make sense? The process of sanctification, and that's a, whole, that's a whole sermon series, but the key is this. The process of sanctification happens by grace through faith. So again, you who were, what is it specifically? Verse three, you've begun by the spirit. You're now being perfected by the flesh. We think, here's what we think. Oh man, now, whoo. A lot of times when I talk to people about sanctification, they think it's this. They think sanctification is me now in my flesh perfecting myself. That's literally what Paul is saying not to do. You started in the, how did you start? By grace through faith. How will you grow? By grace through faith. How will you be, uh, how will you be glorified in the last day? By grace through faith. Rest your hope fully in the grace that will be revealed to you in the last day. Does that make sense? All right. If you have questions about that, come talk to me. We're going to take communion. You can get out your elements. This message and this meal 
is how all of this is possible. It's the only thing. It's the only way. Like, it, it literally is it. If, if Jesus didn't die and was, wasn't buried and wasn't resurrected, then I have no hope that I'm righteous. Because then the penalty of my sin is still up to me. But when I understand that if his body was actually broken and he was actually buried, that means that so was I. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Then I can live from faith, which is Jesus' ability to make me right, rather than my own ability to do it. So, Lord, I thank you so much for your body that was broken. Lord, that you became a man and you took on in your flesh sinfulness. Lord, you who knew no sin became the essence of sin. You became it. Lord, as we take this this morning, I ask that you would remind us of what you took. Lord, remind us of what you took and what you became. And Lord, remind us of what you gave us and who we became. So Lord, we take of your body and we say thank you. Just thank him. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, we're not under a law. Thank you, Lord, we're under love in the spirit. So we take of your body, Lord, and we eat. And Lord, we thank you for your blood poured out. Lord, the blood of the new covenant that is eternal. Lord, it doesn't come and go. It's not temporary. But Lord, you have made eternal atonement for us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you've made us new. Lord, I ask that your blood would counsel us. That the message of your blood would counsel us into new life. So we take and we drink. that today the truth of this message would be in our hearts. Lord, that your truth would be in our hearts and would overcome everything else. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Um, if we could have ministry teams come up and also remember to check out the youth fundraiser. Um, Y'all have a blessed week.